Today, I want to do something which is in some way a continuation of last week when I was speaking about God's creativity. And I'd look, like to look at a particular kind of creativity that God enjoys, and that is poetry. So my title today is The Beauty and Power of Old Testament Poetry. And my goal is to be able to take in the beauty and power of Old Testament poetry so as to fill us with joy in our amazing God. And we're going to do three things. First of all, we're going to say, what is poetry? And where do we find it in the Bible? Then we're going to look at the unique beauty of Hebrew poetry, because it's a, it's a different kind of thing to our modern poetry. <clears throat> and then we're going to try and feel the power in this poetry. So, um, where do we find poetry in the Bible? Does anybody want to tell me? Yeah? Psalms is a great place to start. Anywhere else? Is it just Psalms? Yeah? All the bits that are printed differently. Yes, that's a good way. So, almost half of the Old Testament is poetry. So, as well as the Psalms, there's Proverbs, Song of Job, all of Job, Song of Solomon, Lamentations. Then, in addition to that, large parts of the prophets, books like Hosea, the entire Hosea is poetry. Micah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, these are poetry. And even some narrative books like Genesis, um, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and many of the others have got like whole chapters of poetry in there. So it's about 50% of the Old Testament is poetry. So what about the new? Well, there is not as much as in the old, but there are many quotations. It's full of quotations from the old, and often the poetry is quoted. And there are some places where there's new songs, like the beginning of Colossians, there's, there's uh, the song of the firstborn, which is a, which is a poetry, and some other places throughout the New Testament. So the question then is, if there's this much poetry, what is poetry? How do we define poetry? And um, so does anybody want to give me a definition of poetry? What makes poetry? What defines it as poetry? Yeah? A somewhat consistent structure. Okay. Some sort of regularity. All right. Yes. That may or may not be true. I'm not going to answer those yet. Okay. Paints words, pictures, and conjures up emotions. Actually, that's quite, that's, that's not bad at all. Um, yeah. So let me give you a bad definition. Uh, it rhymes. Okay. Because some kinds of poetry doesn't rhyme at all. Although typically, our modern Western poetry does rhyme, but not always. Um, has a rhythm. Well, that can be the case, but very often it doesn't have a rhythm, at least not the kind of rhythm that you would think of. Uh, songs generally have to have a rhythm because you've got to be able to fit them into a tune, but not so much poetry. Pretty. Well, that's a kind of a, a um, 
I guess, the stereotype of poetry, but often it's really not what defines it. Um, so uh, I would say it's, no, it's another way is to call it intensified language, a little bit similar to what Anne said, intensified language. And here's a, uh, an example that breaks the previous three rules that I gave you. The Eagle by Alfred Tennyson. He clasps the crag with crooked hands close to the sun in lonely lands. The idea is that he's so high up in the sky, ringed with the azure world he stands, the, the color of the sky around him. And it brings this picture up, these words bring this picture up, this eagle that's so high up and just... uh um his crooked hand, like his, his claws. And then d- in the background, d- down beneath him, the sea is so far away that it goes, the wrinkled sea, the waves look like wrinkles. The wrinkled sea beneath him crawls. He watches from him mountain walls. And like a thunderbolt, he falls. So you could say, actually, that does sort of rhyme because it's got some rhyming endings of the first and second half, but it's certainly not like a pretty, some pretty phrases, but it's very vivid because it's using picture language. So it's, it's regarded, saying his claws are like crooked hands. Rather than saying he's high up, it's saying he's close to the sun. It's rather than saying, um, you know, he drops quickly, like a thunderbolt, he falls. So a key element of poetry is using a lot of picture language because pictures will actually connect with us in a, in a different way, in a, in a more visceral way. So uh, that's, that's a, a, an example. And I'm just going to give you a, a psalm that does that, that, that does that kind of thing. Um, the poetry. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, he doesn't want to live in the temple. <laughs> David's not saying, I want... So what does he mean? This is an image of actually living in God's house. It's like a spiritual thing. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So like you can't physically see God in the temple. But here, if he's spiritually in God's house, he's gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in this spiritual temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. So the idea is that that he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. And so God's in a tent and like pulls David in into the tent when he's in trouble. What could be safer than in the tent with God? So this is a picture language that he's using to imagine the safety and security. He can't physically go into God's tent, but it's such a vivid picture. And then he will lift me on a high rock, just so high that no troubles can get to me. And then, um, so so uh, let's imagine we were going to rewrite this um, in non-poetry. So we have verse 5. Uh, let's rewrite his non-poetry. We could say, he'll make sure I'm safe when there's trouble and keep me away from danger. Now, do those things mean the same? Well, roughly, but it doesn't, it doesn't stir anything in you, does it? When you read the, read my, my kind of plain equivalent, because it's missing that vividness. It's much more vivid to say, he'll conceal me under the cover of his tent than to say, he'll keep me away from danger. 
And one of the problems in our translations is some translations will try and will have to have a well all translations have a balance between intelligibility and accuracy. But if we're really going for the, the easiest to read, that can be a cost to the, the poetic quality. It's very difficult to translate poetry. And um, so um, that's a challenge. And we, of course, want to understand it. But just bear that in mind that, that really, to, to, to really understand Hebrew poetry, to really get the beauty, you have to read it in Hebrew. And um, I'm sorry about that because most of us can't, but somebody wrote, um, reading Hebrew poetry in a translation is like kissing your bride through a veil. Well, it's okay, but it's not as good as the real thing. <laughs> so um, that's, uh, so that's, um, so what do we do with that? Well, we have a good translation and we just say, well, you know, God... We, I'm going to, as I'm coming to the end, like we need to be writing good poetry in our language, in our culture, in this time. So, uh, psalms are poetry, and poetry is something that has, uh, evokes feeling because of the picture language in it. So I, I mentioned what about today? Well, one of the best known, best loved, I should say, probably the best loved, um, uh, hymn today is Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. So it's like imagining this word is actually being spoken. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. I now am found. Was blind, but now I see. So both of those are pictures. I was lost. You know, I might not have been physically lost, but I was lost as far as salvation is concerned, of my future. I was blind to the wonders of God, but now I see. And so there's a beauty in that poetry, that's why it's uh, it's such a well-known and much appreciated um, poem because of the way it's expressed evokes this response in us and touches us in a deep way. So um, poetry stirs our hearts. So the first feature of poetry is that the language points to a vivid picture for us. And uh, that is my that was my first point what poetry is. The second is that, uh, as Bill mentioned earlier, poetry usually has some kind of form to it, some way that it's formed. And the way that Hebrew poetry is formed is very different to the way that um, uh, our, our poetry is formed. And this isn't often taught outside of Bible colleges and seminaries. And yet we all read the poetry. So I think it's worth spending some time on this um, to actually understand what is going on this here, here because it will reap some value. So let's, let's look at what we mean by form in poetry. So here's a, a, a modern form of poetry. There was a there once was a man from Nantucket who kept all his cash in a bucket, but his daughter named Nan ran away with a man, and as for the bucket, Nan took it. So, you know, this is a... Does anybody know what this kind of structure is called? A limerick. Yes, a limerick is... And you know it because it's got that... It's got five lines, too long, too short, and then a long one to finish. And usually the first and the last word kind of connect together. Here's another one for your entertainment. There is a young schoolboy named Mason whose mom cuts his hair with a basin. When he stands in one place, 
with a scarf around his face, it's a mystery which way he's facing. So usually another thing about limericks, usually they're, they're comedic. So this is a particular form. And because we're in this culture, we recognize it. But if you took somebody from, if you took King David into our culture and showed him this, we wouldn't have a clue what's going on. Uh, because we need to understand how it works in that language and culture. So the name that we give to Hebrew poetry is parallelism. And parallelism, there's a basic feature, is pairs of lines which resonate together in some way. So here's an example. By day the Lord sends forth his love, and at night his song is with me. And this is a very complete version because you can represent everything in the first, in the second. By day, tonight, the Lord, his, his love, his song. And um, uh, there's a slight change at the end because the first one says he sends forth his love and the second line says the song is with me. So there's a little bit of a development there. But there's a beauty to the way that that's balanced. It's got a symmetry in the structure. Sometimes the first line and the second line just match exactly, and sometimes there's a complete reversal of the order in the second line. And um, if we knew Hebrew, we would say we would see that in Hebrew you get male and female forms, just like you do in French, and they're balancing the words. So they might use a male the first time, a female the second, or the other way around, and that kind of symmetry and balance uh, uh, would, would be a feature. That's in there. So this is the basic form then of what we call parallelism. Sometimes it extends to four lines. Uh, so here's an example in Isaiah 1 verse 3. The ox knows his master. This is God talking about how Israel are just ignoring him and not caring about him. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And so as God is pleading with them, you can see there's four lines. The first is ox and donkey, master, owner's manger, and then Israel, my people. But the whole thing is parallel. So the first two are the opposite to the second two. And so there's a... There's a, a real power and a beauty when you can frame it like that because you can very clearly see what's going on in the uh, the opposition, the the the, um, the comparison between what's happening in the first two lines and what's not happening in the last two, and that leads us into the second kind of parallelism. The first kind is where you get the the first lines and the second line are saying the same thing the next time uh sorry i let me ju- let me just let me just go through that once more um matching parallelism the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear the lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall i be afraid so um it's it's nice because when we have it said twice sometimes the two play off one another and we give, um, we get a richer picture between them. But what I was just about to say, this is when they match. They're synonymous. But sometimes the two lines are the opposite way around. Um, so Psalm 90 verse 6, 
And this is talking about the grass as a picture of how short our life is. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. So, and it's saying, you know, how short human life is. And the morning is like a picture of our, our youth, and then the evening is our old age. And so that's opposing parallelism. And it's actually, the book of Proverbs is almost entirely opposing parallelism. Because actually it's a very powerful way of saying something precisely. Because if you can say what you're not saying as well as what you are saying, then it's very clear what you are saying. Here's an example. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. You see, it's much more complete when you say it both ways because you're, you're, you could be misunderstood if you, it's runway, but you're actually drawing a line around both sides. So the book of Proverbs um, does that frequently and other poetry does as well, as I showed in that other example. And so that opposing form of parallelism, parallelism is very common, not quite as common as when they match, but it's very common. And um, uh, an, another form is when you go from picture to reality. When the first half is pictorial, an image, and then it switches to reality. And uh, this can be very beautiful. Uh, so Psalm 42, verse 1, and I'm sure you know this one. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so that's figurative, so pants my soul for you, O Lord. Such a powerful way of speaking because it's like imagining this deer and it's desperately thirsty, looking for water. And in the psalm, that the deer is being hunted and it's just so desperate. And here it's saying, he's saying, that's how I pant for you, O God. And then another one, Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So that kind of poetry is um, very rich, and there's a lot of that in the psalm. So with some of that psalm in Psalm 27, when I opened with it, it had that image of um, of God drawing us into his tent, and that being like him taking us out of trouble. So very rich when you can do this sort of thing. Um, and and now, what I'm giving you here is like the basic rules, but as with any art form, when you once you know the rules, you can you can riff off them, and you can do other things with them, and you can. And we're going to end with the psalm that's doing all sorts of riffing off the rules. Um, but if you know the rules, then you know what it is you're riffing off. So, but there's another one which is really I really love this, and there are different names for it. Some people call it climactic. My famous favorite name for it is staircase parallelism, and staircase is when you're building up in each line, and um, so. It's to create movement. So give unto the Lord, O ye mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, I imagine that this had some sort of musical form that went with it, that built up to a climax in that, and it backed up, it reinforced the way that it's written. But there's quite a lot of this sort of thing in the Psalms, and there's, it, there's a, a, a power in that way that it pushes through. Um, so 
Let's go look at an example, shall we? One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 40. Anybody know what Psalm 40, how Psalm 40 goes? Yeah? Okay. Um, so what we're going to say, oh, let me just give a recap. We've looked at what poetry is, where it is in the Bible. We've been through the, what it is for Hebrew poetry, what Hebrew, how it works, how Hebrew poetry works, and how important it is to understand that to really see what's happening. Now, having done all the work, we want to feel the power of Hebrew poetry. And we're going to start off by looking at Psalm 40 as an example. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. So inclined means to, to lean. And it's like God is he's like you're waiting down there and God is he's leaning over and he's hearing you. And so you can imagine the psalmist is just crying and crying and crying and then God hears. He drew me up from a pit out of the miry clay. So he was sinking into this clay, into a bog, lower and lower and lower. Now, obviously, it was, wasn't literal. We know with Jeremiah, it was literal. And with, let's see, Joseph, it was literal. But you can imagine, you, you know, we, we talk about this as a metaphor. I just feel I'm stuck right now. I'm just in a bog. I'm sinking. And we use that metaphor. And he's sinking in this bog, in this clay, and he's going down and down and down. And you know what happens if you keep going down in the in the bog. And God hears him and draws him up out of this, out of the miry clay. So picture language. He set my feet upon a rock. So the opposite then to the to the clay, to the rock, and now we have he makes my steps secure. So he's now he's not the the steps really everything is firm to stand on. And so what we've been seeing right now is um these are all matching parallelism here. Um, the first one is matching the two lines. I waited and then, well, actually, it's, I guess it's complementing one another. I waited, he heard me. And then, but the, the, the verse two is all about um, the, uh, the matching image of God lifting him up and putting him somewhere. Then we have, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. So we got parallel. The first one says he put a new song in my mouth. And this is an image like, what does it mean to for God to put a song in your mouth? It's like suddenly you just feel like bursting out singing because God has put it there. He's not having to work. Oh, I, knew, I ought to write a song now. No, he's like bursting out. And then we get a certain, the, the second line does what um, is like a mini staircase where you don't have to repeat the first bit. He's put a, he's put in my mouth. He can go on a song of praise and build on that, a song of praise to our God. So um, then, uh, then the, the last bit, many will see and fear. And many will put their trust in the Lord. So this ring, rings around it, the, the, the first three verses to a complete circle because now they see what happened. They see he was in the clay. They see God pulling him out. They see God putting him in a rock. And they hear the song about it. 
and they put their trust in the Lord. So it, it rounded out to a beautiful circle there. So um, now what I noticed there is verse 3. It says, he put a new song in my mouth. And that phrase, a new song, occurs quite a few times in the Bible. Um, so we have Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And God wants us to read and enjoy this poetry, but it's God's will that we should be writing new poetry. In the book of Revelation, when they're worshiping Jesus, it said they sang a new song, the song of the Lamb. And we see, we hear the song that they sang in, in the book of Revelation. So, and People are, people write new songs. We hear new songs being written and it's wonderful that this is happening. And I'm just going to share how people have tried to take this imagery from Psalm 40 and apply, and take it and apply it to Jesus and put Jesus in it. And this is a, this is one of my favorite poems. Um, I'll try and read it without tears coming to my eyes because it really moves me. Um, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. And this is, of course, the the verse, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Lay down, you weary one. Lay down your head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. And so here's the imagery of like, I'm actually, Jesus calling me to lay, put my head on his breast. And like, what would it be like just to be able to lie down and rest your head on Jesus? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, John actually did it at the Last Supper. Wouldn't that be amazing to do that? Um, But he says, he invites us. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place and he has made me glad. So there's actually some similarities in that to Hebrew poetry, the way it's written, but it's got, it's updated to be a new song because the new song is about Jesus and what Jesus has done. And rather than God lifting us out of the miry clay uh, or bring us into his tent, we had say Jesus saying, come and rest on me and I'll make your resting place. So here's another, another one of my favorites. Uh, Beneath the cross of Jesus. I love to take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. And so, uh, the idea of, um, of like the scorching sun coming down and there's no, there's no escape from this, the scorching of the sun, but there's a huge rock and you can hide, you can get some rest there. A home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. So what is it that makes that powerful? It's the imagery that's in there. It's so rich. It's it's like beneath the cross of Jesus. Like And so Jesus' cross, being in the shadow of Jesus' cross, is a picture of, of the safe place where you can be safe from this scorching sun that comes down, but you can come there and you can rest. And of course, we don't do that physically, but spiritually we can do that. We can imagine it. So poetry paints a picture in our minds, which we can enjoy. We can enter it into it and we need to be writing it.
So um, what I'd like to do is to end now with one of the best known psalms. In fact, it probably is the best known psalm, and that's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, a psalm of David. By the way, the, the notes at the tops of the psalms, the, the, uh, the, let's say, who wrote it or where no one's written, those uh, are inspired. Those are there in the, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we have. And so we know that David wrote, wrote this. And of course, this is relevant because David was a shepherd and he wrote this from his own life. So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. So first of all, we've got the imagery of God being like a shepherd. And then as a result of that, I'll be, everything will be provided for me. Some translations. So I shall not want. Everything will be given to me that I need. And then it builds on that. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now, those two lines match, don't they? They're saying the same thing in different ways. Now, you'll see in this in this poem that there's a lot of riffing off the basic structure. He does some things a little differently just to to bring it uh, to, to 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 make it beautiful. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And so, the. Uh, this then is this the statement he's repeating, he leads me, he leads me. But here we've got, on, got a third line which is added, which is done sometimes. The third line is added, and that is like, a, it's a little like the staircase, it's like a climax that it builds up to. And so where it's building up to is actually, God's not just doing this because he feels sorry for me, but actually his name, and Ruth mentioned earlier about God's name is his character, you know, his love. That, and that's absolutely true, God's name. And for the sake of who he is, God is doing this for me, not because he's sorry for me, but this is the kind of God he is. This is what his name is. And so, and then it goes on, though I walk, and so again, the same image of walking, moving. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they come from me. So there's a little twist here because to start off with, God is, everything is good, everything is lovely, lots of food, all the things we need. But then we go, we switch to the valley of the shadow of death. And, you know, that's an image that we use, that we understand very readily, but really only because of Psalm 23, because it's uh, become embedded in our culture. You know, if you say, oh, it's been, it was a valley of shadow of death that I was going through, um, or you know, he's been under the shadow of death. You know, we, we use those imagery, but it, when you think of it, it's such a powerful image. You're going through a valley with steep sides and it's dark and you're afraid. And like death could come from any side. And he's going through this and there's terror. And you may have been through like parts of your life like this. It feels like the valley of the shadow of death, maybe sickness or maybe some other threat. And he says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You are with me and your rod and your staff, they come from me. And that would have been the shepherd's rod, the shepherd who will pull me up 
out of out of problems if I'm in there. He'll, he'll keep me. He'll guide me on the way. And then, um, uh, then so let's carry on with this. You prepare. So we've we've gone through the first phase, which is describing God as the image of God leading us. The second is the image of God, like being with us there as we're going through this darkness. The third one is like the triumphant phase when we've been through all of that. We come out and he's making a table, a feast for us. He's laying out this massive feast and the enemies are watching and they were the ones trying to kill us and they see God making a feast for us. And so you make it a table for us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And this is, again, these are, parallel but they're they're kind of different they're different aspects one is like the physical provision and the other is is more like my other parts of my body like giving me giving giving me this oil and and drink and so on so this is this is the triumph and then we have this wonderful movement the whole thing is moving and we have the the movement at the end surely goodness and mercy shall follow me so what an interesting idea that you're walking along and you you can hear something behind you. What is it? Oh, it's goodness and mercy. It's okay. They're, they're, they've got my back. And so this the traveling image again, they're following me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where I'm heading to. And uh, so there's a a, 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 a a beautiful rounding off of this poem where it ends up in glory. Forever, I will I will be forever looked after by the Lord. So, I I my goal from this sermon today is that you would be inspired to read some Hebrew poetry, and you'd be inspired to enjoy it and, and be enriched by it. But also, you'd be inspired to write some poetry yourself and to really try and capture capture the richness of what we have that stirs your heart and stirs the hearts of other people because of the language. God has created us with the ability to write poetry. He's created poetry. He's created the idea of poetry. So we can have our hearts stirred by these words. And often we're content just to lay things out in a very kind of statement, statement, no picture language, just say it, because... We tend to be very functional in our culture. And I want to say, I want to show you how the Bible isn't just a functional thing. The Bible isn't just, let's say, in the minimum number of words efficiently as possible. The Bible is extravagant in the use of the vivid pictures and the language. And I want to stir us up to engage our hearts with God in this way through this poetry. So let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father, for this psalm in particular, that you are the good shepherd, that you, Lord, you'll, you'll lead us beside the still waters, you'll keep us safe in the valley of the shadow of death. You'll lay out a feast for us, and in glory, we will be with you forever. Thank you for these vivid pictures you give us. Lord, we pray that you'll fill our hearts with joy, as we feel what you're saying to us, in Jesus' name. Amen.